previously on Storyological. <laughs> <laughs> But to, to get back to the thing, Corey asked me about the trip to the US and talking about whether I was homesick. And I was trying to figure out why, even though this isn't the longest I've been away from the US, it was the most intense homecoming. And I told her it's a bit like when you've been away from family for a long time and you've gotten letters saying, About so and so has died, or someone so and so has gotten sick, and you have this feeling that your family has been going through this trauma. And now, when you come back, there's that bright embrace that you're all together again. And that's the feeling I had going back to the US is like I was back home, I was back with my people, we were hugging each other, we were talking things out. Suddenly, this trauma that I had been experiencing at a distance to someone I loved,、mm. I now got to be there with them. Right. And you could see it up close. Yeah. Yeah. It felt it got to be. Personal. It got to be human. It got to be that thing that can never quite happen through screens, through the way that we interact. Even reading a book, like that thing belongs to me. And when I get to meet other people to whom the stories actually belong to them, there's a different energy. You had a similar experience, I feel like, when we were in the US, because a lot of things happened here in England. A feeling that trauma was going on when you were away. When, you, when we got back, Did it feel like that? My experience is somewhat similar because I'm reading about it in The Guardian, whether I'm here or away. I'm reading about it in the New York Post, whether I'm here or away. Now, maybe here I'm having more conversations with people who have stronger and more related, more closer opinions and experience of the election or the terrorist attacks or the fire. But in some sense, everything feels at a distance when it is. A discussion of a public news story. I find it very difficult to, to feel intimately connected to it. It feels further away than like characters in a book. No. No. Similar. Oh, okay. Like in, in some ways it doesn't seem real. Oh, which is the way you experience characters in a book?、Mm-hmm. I think about that, about how. That the way we experience stories can be the way we experience life, and the feeling that, that somehow being on intimate terms with imaginary things helps us in figuring out how to be on intimate terms with other people and other things that are real. I think stories are totally empathy building machines. I feel like we've said that before, and it's something I believe, but. But even the feeling of empathy or the feeling of like an intimate knowledge and understanding of a character in a book, it doesn't feel real. I don't know, maybe we've got different, different definitions of what real is.、Um, I think, based on our long discussions, it's possible we have exactly the same definitions of real and unreal. I just don't view them as different. Definitions of different words, but different definitions of the same word, the same concept. You can look、mm. at reality and say it's unreal, or you can look at reality and say it's real. You can look at unreality and say it's real, or say it's unreal, but you're always describing the same, the same thing, thing. Just at a slightly different angle. Yeah. I feel like, yeah. So. Right. And part of, a part of humanity is understanding that those different angles of looking are all. All contain real humans. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, the imaginary stuff contains real humans, and the real human stuff contains imaginary humans.、Um, I thought you were going to say they're all equally valid, and I was running through in my mind too. Are they? Because, gosh, I really, it feels 
better to engage with things as though they're real under the definition of real, which we're brought up to <laughs> accept. Well, I think one of the problems that Theresa May has is that she doesn't seem to really believe that other people are real or other mm -hmm. life experiences are real. And that is why she seems to stumble so hard when confronted with these tragedies. And her response is, well, we clamp down tighter. We have more police. We have more surveillance. We have more laws. And I don't think that that is a response that many people in the country are really feeling like it reflects their experience mm. of it like it reflects a response that they would have you know the f most people is sort of horror and outrage sure but then segueing into something different than Theresa May <laughs> <laughs> and a many a many pronged um yeah rather many different options of what that could be but I feel like she's she's struggling this is Storylogical, a podcast about amazing stories that we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud. And I'm E.G. Kosh. My pick for this week is Whatever Happened to Interracial Love by <laughs> Kathleen Collins. What did happen to it? Uh, it is the title story of her collection of the same name, as that is what title story means, which is, I believe, a joke I have made on this podcast before. But I have never made it twice and then put a disclaimer about how I have made it before. This is the first time that this has happened. Uh, <laughs> Emma is, is getting ready for whatever she's going to say next because she knows it's definitely unlikely she's going to need to respond to anything, which I am <laughs> saying now. It's going to wait for you to introduce the story. Um, yeah. So I first encountered Kathleen Collins in a journal called A Public Space, which is edited by a lady named Bridget Hughes, who is mentioned uh, who is mentioned in the acknowledgement of the book that Emma and I got, because this is the British publication, which was done by Granta. Mm -hmm. HarperCollins did the one in the US. Um, but the acknowledgements for this book says many thanks to Bridget Hughes, the prescient editor of A Public Space, without whom this collection would likely never have seen the light of day. Kathleen Collins was this amazing activist and intellectual uh, who grew up in New Jersey, I believe. Mm -hmm. More cemeteries per capita than anywhere else in the US. New Jersey really has so much to be proud of. <laughs> One of which is Kathleen Collins. Um, so the story of Kathleen Collins is this the story of a lot of people that aren't part of the hegemony that have just kind of for whatever reason, their work has not been celebrated, but they mm. definitely existed and they definitely wrote work and did things worth being celebrated in a larger sphere. And it's, it feels like in that conversation that this these collections of stories and her work is coming into light right now. A movie she made uh, called Losing Ground came out again in the festivals in the past couple of years. And it was seeing that movie that led Bridget Hughes to track down any unpublished writing that this person might have and it turned out there was a whole collection there. Yeah, a whole collection that was called Losing Ground that had but they published it under a different mm -hmm. name. Maybe because they were like, you know what, whatever happened to interracial love sounds like a title that might yeah. Be might. Part of the the Zeitgeist. It is. That's part of I mean we're Readers, eventually I'll get to a summary of the story, little, but a little hungry hippo's a hungry hippo, with, yeah. My, yeah. with my hand. Uh it does feel part of the zeitgeist it does feel even that the stories she's writing kind of are in conversation with the idea of this being a perpetual zeitgeist that every once in a while race is something we talk about and the story that i 
picked for us to talk about, Whatever Happened to Interracial Love. It's not necessarily my favorite story in the collection. I don't know if it's the best, but it's the most. It's like the most Kathleen Collins that you could get in a story. <laughs> it is uh, pretty distilled. Honestly. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, you get the, the kind of intellectual and emotional tour de force. You get characters that are deeply emotional and break off into bouts of automatic writing in which they explore their emotional and traumatic experiences. And you get the giving rein to like intellectualism, discussing race and politics and gender in ways that seem entirely enshrined from a very well-educated like uh, perspective. There was a quote uh, I read, I think it was in the introduction to this book, describing the elation that this person had finding Kathleen Collins and reading what she described as black and white bohemians talking their way through complicated lives. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's whatever happened to interracial love is a story for the most part about uh, a woman named Cheryl who, who doesn't get named until fairly late in the story, which is part of the, the tone of this story. The narrator is writing from some present that is now our past, but, Really, because there's no mention of when the narrator's writing from, any time you read this story, which is a story of 1963, you can imagine that the present is your present, and we're looking back at 1963 from whenever, and that's part of what makes it kind of sad and hopeful, because the tone of the story that is recounted in the fact that there is a refrain over and over again in the story, it's 1963, whatever happened to interracial love, and you you kind of know that the it's 1963 means in the past and whatever happened to interracial love means in the aftermath of 1963 mm-hmm. wherever that finds you and that is the core of the story cheryl has a relationship with a white boy who has decided to go down to mississippi in 1963 not once but twice to picket and protest and to get out the vote that's what's going on in 1963 they're trying to get out the black vote in the south trying to get people educated trying to get people to the polls and the story encompasses Cheryl's relationship with that white boy. At the same time, it encompasses the entire milieu that is around her in the kind of northern intellectual sphere where people are discussing black and white and what it is, what it is to exist in America and how can we fulfill the dream. And there is what I, f- I feel like the tone of the story is a kind of furious lament for a promise that was held between people at one time that now seems to be not. There's such bitterness and hope to me in the tone of the story. I'm going to start by talking about some references, some other stories that it made me think of, because kind of that's the way into how I opened up the story. The first is The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath, which is a story about a woman of a similar age um, after university or in the, in the midst of university, going to New York and and finding herself washed away in terms of her identity almost, unable to hold herself together in that context. I thought about The Freedom Maze by Delia Sherman and that young girl who was transported back in time. She's a, a white girl with a tan skin who, when she goes back in time, is confused for a black girl and forced to work on the farm or the plantation where where she lives in the future and I also thought of a white stripe song which I will come back to later what 
it later. I know, right? Oh. Well, I'll get to that. I'll okay. get to that. But the, so the first yeah. two, the first two references are very much about this kind of um, struggle for identity mm-hmm. when your surroundings change, or, or when your surroundings are very different to what you hope or expect, or what you've grown up inside of. And and that to me is the central enticement of this story is Cheryl trying like bouncing around between all these different places Mm -hmm. and people in her life like a pinball you know in when she's at home with her father she's kind of in this bourgeois middle class setup when she goes south she becomes okay well is she a negro is she a colored girl when she goes back up north she's cut her hair and that somehow changes her identity for her father when mm-hmm. she lives with her white girl roommate or go, dates her white, in quotes, mm-hmm. <laughs> boyfriend. Again, like her struggle and discussion of identity is so often in response to these other people and places in her life. And I really loved that Kathleen still kept us true to who she was through all of that. Like we sensed that she was struggling with her identity, mm-hmm. but we didn't sense her being washed away. Like in the bell yeah. jar, when her when she sort of dissipates for want of a better Wait, word. Wait, does, does she disappear into a cloud of bubbles like the little mermaid? I mean, psychologically speaking. <laughs> okay. Okay. The... Look, I love that book. I also find it very painful to read, but I was very happy to see the, to see Cheryl's depression or manic depression dealt with very differently here. I think the no, the narrative style I found to be so kind of muscular and in your face. And, oh, yeah, yeah. So yeah. that was what I found to be intoxicating about about this story, this discussion of identity and and having everybody's labels in quotes and feeling like she was really digging around underneath those labels as to what they meant and how they could change. She's consciously engaging with the the limitations and possibilities that you get when you engage with labels. I, I mean, we do this podcast and we make we made a decision to not talk about a lot of white cis men and to front people of other identities that we've never talked about it on the podcast. And we've never really when we talk about like right now, we're talking about Kathleen Collins and Zadie Smith, two mm-hmm. writers of color. We would never really say, and this week we're talking about two writers of color. <laughs> and there is there is a reason why we don't do it. And it does get us somewhere. Maybe it gets us a place where we want to imagine that we're talking about stories and that we're giving giving voice and boosting and... Amplifying. Yeah, amplifying people that we love that aren't necessarily... I don't even know how to say it, but but that aren't white, that aren't cis white men but but what does that mean and people amplifying the voices of people we love who who aren't benefiting from the hedge money okay yes yeah and that and and yet i feel uncomfortable like right now to talk about it and have you define it like i don't really want to define what we're doing and yet we are doing something specific and part of what i love in kathleen collins writing is that she goes there anyway like, it can seem pat sometimes in the way, like, race is deployed in the story, but it's done consciously. And it's done, as you said, ferociously. And there's a bit, like, where that... Where I feel like the way she writes, the way she depicts character, the way it can seem both celebratory and sad. <laughs> like, there's a bit where on page 48... Well, I don't know why I said the page. 
It's 1963. The windows to this ground floor interracial mecca are always wide open. An assortment of people avoid the door and come in through the windows. There's Adrian, white, another long-haired beauty of the Sarah Lawrence variety. She spends all her time with Skip, the ghetto youth with the heroin problem. She and Charlotte spent hours trying to devise ways to help Skip kick the habit and become a full-time rent-strike organizer, with the other part of his time taken up with solving his daily problem. They see him as a beautiful human being, quote, caught in the currents of a segregated existence. They fervently believe that their own infiltration of his lifestyle, their own willingness to live among him and with him if the need arises, will surely change all this. Integration is a pulsating new beat which will liberate him from the old segregated ways of doing things. For is it not, after all, we who must overcome, we who must walk hand in hand? I just love the, the twinness of the way that is delivered, where it both feels like it's denigrating a past hope and also lamenting it. Right, and there's something about the, the narration style that you mentioned, about this long view. It feels like she's talking from far in the future, looking back on 1963 and kind of lamenting the loss of hope, but yet also from this older perspective, mm. looking back and thinking how naive we were and how ridiculous we were to... How ridiculous Alan, this white boy, is to use a phrase like, I thought I could be a Negro for you. It's great because even the identity of progress is called into question. Mm, beyond the the racial discussions is how she pokes at, say, Charlotte, the flatmate character, who imagines she's going to work and support her boyfriend, Henry, who's going to write poetry. And then in a sentence, she squashes it. She says, Charlotte found she didn't like working, not even for poetry. <laughs> and I just, it's so kind of delightful and painful mm -hmm. and uncomfortable all at once yeah. and i'm like sort of squirming as i read it and like oh yeah i feel for these characters and i feel mm -hmm. for their idealism and in fact the way she describes i it was 1963 idealism came back into fashion and i don't want to think of idealism as being something that is fashion-led i don't want to think of mm. ethics as being a part of fashion through this story and through these mechanisms and the repetition she forces us to acknowledge that there is some aspect of that. And in fact, driving change happens when you can harness energy to put behind whatever uh, good ideas come into fashion. And that's, that's when we kind of acquiesce to change rather than pushing ideas that are unpopular, however fair and just they might be. And I, I dislike that. I want to live and think I am part of a society that just does the right thing mm -hmm. and is totally open to new ideas right. instead of being, in fact, part of this responding to these kind of swells and throbs of uh, fashion. The discomfort in the story, it, it's partly what you, what you described about coming into contact with this idea of idealism as a fashion-led thing. And that is part of what I loved at the story, that discomfort, and yet that, that particular discomfort of... I, idealism as a fashion also felt incantatory to me. It was part of what I loved, the, the way she repeats, it's 1963, it's the, the time of the human being. Part of what was uncomfortable for me that I loved was like when the character Cheryl is describing interracial babies and about, she's describing how beautiful they are and the, the kink in an African-American person's hair getting straightened out just a bit. And then she makes some untoward references to the eyes of certain people that I won't repeat here that were uncomfortable to read and yet felt 
you know, just right for that character. There was even, there was something about the way she could deploy the naivete and the idealism in a way that captured the ignorance and the prejudice of it that was glorious. Mm-hmm. And she's funny. Like, yeah. Cheryl is funny. The point of view is funny. It's not just muscular. It's funny. There's a bit where she describes her father's solution to the problem of when you're the only, you know, quote, colored woman at a school where people are going to freak out and be like, eek, <laughs> you know, a black woman is my roommate and run away. And the father's solution was just, just be... Get a uh, single. Yeah, get a single. Be alone. Yeah. So the last thing I want to say is to come back to this White Stripe song. Um, because it relates to the amazing rhythm and incantatory nature of the prose. I thought about that song, Little Acorns, which starts out with the very deep-voiced man reading a piece of prose about Janet, who learns, who is terribly depressed, and one day watches a squirrel break up his hoard into little pieces and carry it, carry it to his nest or carry it to his hiding place. And the, each sentence is in, is interspersed with these piano riffs. Dun, 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 dun. And I felt like this story was almost bringing in that kind of melodrama to the, yeah. like what he's doing with the piano, she's doing just in the prose itself. And it's incredible. Like it, it makes you feel like, it makes you feel like it is both a song and a poem and a story all in one. My pick for this week is The Embassy of Cambodia by Zadie Smith, which I found in the Penguin Book of British Short Stories, but which was originally published in 2013 as like a standalone tiny short story book, it seems. Apparently Zadie Smith is famous enough to be able to publish a short story on its own and uh, have that be a commercially viable opportunity. Yes. Yes, she is. So this is the story of Fatu. A woman from the Ivory Coast who is working as a nanny and a housekeeper to a kind of abusive family in North London. And it's the story of her very slow and steady escape. But it's also many passages of her life are told in flashback or in retrospect. And you get the sense that Fatu is a woman who has spent all her life very slowly escaping from the position that she is in. She talks about coming with her father from the Ivory Coast to Accra and working in a hotel there. And then that turned out not to be such a great situation because it seemed like all of the staff were expected to pimp themselves out. And also one day she was raped by one of the guests. So that didn't turn out well. And then her father paid for her to come to Europe and she worked in Italy for a while and then eventually she made it to the UK but in all of these transitions it seems you know the thing that comes through about Fatou is her incredible stoicism to deal with whatever situation she is in Um, which is why I hesitate in calling this a story about her escape because it's not like she spends the story plotting and planning and then uh, escaping from this semi-slavery situation that she finds herself in It is that her stoic determination to do the right thing and to live each day as she can results in her saving the Darrywell's daughter, the Darrywell's being her employer, saving her using the Heimlich maneuver from choking on a marble. And this you think, okay, well, we would all do such a thing and presumably the Darrywell's would be super grateful. Uh Uh-uh. 
Turns out that these horrible people cannot now look her in the eye. And so by by doing this act of kindness, it has kind of been both her rescue and her undoing all in one. As is described of the embassy of Cambodia by the voice of the neighborhood, uh, it is not that we don't have surprising things in our neighborhood. It's just the embassy of Cambodia was not the right kind of surprise. Right. And and her saving of their daughter, not the right kind of surprise. You have <laughs> outstripped correct. what we believe of your station and identity. We're uncomfortable now. Please leave. Mm-hmm. I, I loved how you kept saying slow and steady. There's a, a bit where she describes, I believe, her own swimming as not not elegant but determined. And that was such such a, a, a light of understanding about Fatou and the character and the way Zadie Smith deploys her prose in this story because you can pretty much write whatever prose she likes. But the Zadie Smith that I really love is this particular voice, a voice that feels like it is careful and reasoning, but kind of sad in its careful reasoning. There's something sad about it, and yet also so pragmatic and wonderful. And sort of friendly. That particular twinning of like pragmatic and tragic, what you called Mm -hmm. stoic. There's a particular bit Mm -hmm. where that seemed very, very on the surface of the story, that stoicism, that tragedy, that friendliness, the careful reasoning, which is a bit where she is reading a discarded metro, and it is telling the story of a Sudanese slave. And Fatou is is reasoning very carefully about whether or not she is a slave in the household she finds herself. And she goes step by step reading the article and thinking, well, it's true I haven't seen my passport in a long time, but they do let me go out and I can swim and I can go to church and I have my friend Andrew. Uh, it's true that sometimes they hit me, but it's not too bad. Mm-hmm. And that section ends on this line. No, on balance, she did not think she was a slave. I feel both inspired and empowered by this character's mind and their thinking through, and yet I'm heartbroken at the line, no, on balance, she did not think she was a slave, because a part of you wants to like reach into the story and ring her and be like, if yes, that's a sentence, yes. you have to think. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're literally a slave. You should still move on. But as you say, it's slow and steady for her. It's this yeah. this life that she has led. And, and that will lead us back to badminton. But, but let's, let's keep going for now. Well, I, you know, that passage where she reads the Metro article, that is one of my favorite passages in the story because she engages in this careful reasoning. And yet she is so blinkered, mm-hmm. right? She is so unable to take that extra step to see to see exactly what you said, that actually this is a pretty shitty situation, no matter the, the definition of slave or otherwise. Um, and yet it seems so right for her character because, hey... Nobody's raping her in her current situation. She doesn't have to pimp herself out to anybody. It's significantly better than working in that hotel in Accra. The thing that she does so beautifully, Zadie, in this story is she puts you in constant conflict with kind of, I want the best for Fatou, but also I need to understand her situation and her perspective and accept her definition of what the best is. In the, in, and I can't impose my definition of best which would be get out, get out, get out. That's not going to work for her. She's got no resources. She, you know, she's alone in a country 
where she has no friends or family, except Andrew. Her relationship with Andrew is one of my one of the most enjoyable things about this story. And top five relationships in fiction? I mean, I don't know, but it does lead to one of my top five sentences in fiction ever, which we will get back to. Mm-hmm. Andrew is a man that she meets um, who is of Nigerian descent, and they meet on a park bench one day when he hands her promotional literature about about God. <laughs> promotional literature? Yeah, I, that's the right phrase, isn't it? And he seems to know very little as well. But he does know marginally more about the world than Fatou because he is an independent man who owns, has a job right. and And 24-hour access to the internet. 24. I mean, imagine that's what he's doing with pretty much 23 hours of his day. I feel like you've just described humanity. Like, he knew a little bit more or she knew a little bit more, but it was still pretty limited. Yeah, we're all pretty limited. Yeah. Um, and so... To Fatou, he represents this kind of slightly more worldly, slightly attractive um, friendship and opportunity for a way out, right? Because when she is sacked by her employer eventually for, for saving the daughter, it's Andrew that she can call. And yet she doesn't want to just settle. She feels like she's supposed to be in love with him. She's supposed to like him. And yet she can see his faults clearly and wrestles with that inside of herself thinking like surely it was wrong to find his baby fat and struggling mustache so off-putting and and i'm like no no that's not wrong that is you being very smart and thinking that yes he is he is not a man you should pin your life hopes to right yeah 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 um we will get back to the badminton that also feels like connected to pinning your hopes. We'll get we'll get to the badminton. You don't even know what I'm talking about with badminton, you who are listening, but we'll get there. Also the devil. Uh, but there's a passage where I felt like, you know, you were describing the blinkeredness of Fatou and also how Andrew, with his slightly more knowledge perhaps, is still blinkered. There's a bit where the narrator of the story, who is a person speaking on behalf of the neighborhood, says... The fact is, if we follow the history of every little country in this world, in its dramatic as well as its quiet times, we would have no space left in which to live our own lives or to apply ourselves to our necessary tasks. Never mind indulge in occasional pleasures like swimming. Surely there is something to be said for drawing a circle around our attention and remaining within that circle. But how large should this circle be? That question felt like the question of the story, the beginning of the story, which is itself a delight, the, the first line is, who would expect the embassy of Cambodia? Nobody. So not only is it a perfect capture of that British style of reckless presumption where you would phrase a question of surprise and answer it for yourself, it's also almost a direct quote or a direct paraphrase which I will <laughs> let stand as a perfect a contradiction uh, of Monty Python's uh, skit of the Spanish Inquisition, you know, who would mm-hmm. expect the Spanish Inquisition? Nobody. And I loved how, going back to that question of how big to draw the circle, that Zadie has produced this fantastic contrast um, in the story between that blinkered, reckless presumption and, to be fair, kind of loose causality, fairly loose reasoning that that narrator is embarking on and describing the embassy and contrasted it with 
the perspective of Fatou and Andrew, who also have their own circle of understanding that they're mm-hmm. struggling with. And that is what made the story, part of what made me fall in love with it was her, Zadie's ability to <laughs> compare and contrast, not in a boring way, these different perspectives and the ways they, they limited and excited the people in them in a way that I felt echoed with the Kathleen Collins stories and the way that, in the ways that we are limited, but seek through those limitations to extend beyond ourselves. And how she perfectly captures that is represented in the shuttlecock that oh, now flies we're back to the above, badminton. Yeah, that flies above the wall in the garden of the embassy of Cambodia. And how all these people are living their lives on different tracks. And, you know, we're kind of hidden behind walls from each other. We don't see into each other's homes. We don't necessarily shop in the same places. Hmm. Neighborhoods can be so divided. And all that Fatou can see of what happens in the embassy of Cambodia is just the pock and smash. That's what she can hear, rather, is the pock and smash and the occasional shuttlecock flying above the wall. And I, I loved what that glimpse of the shuttlecock represented and how we only glimpse these fractions of each other's lives. Mm. We don't know who goes home to indentured servitude, who goes home to an abusive husband, who goes home to uh, a loving family. That's not necessarily something we see or understand about each other. But I think what this story is getting at is maybe we should at least wonder, if not ask, if not reach out to the person in our neighborhood that may need it. The reason, really, the reason why I love this story is two things. One is the devil, and two is badminton, which I feel like ultimately are very connected. Uh, I'm sure the devil plays badminton, but the the shuttlecock passing back and forth, yes. Part of it is the the invisibility of the causality of this thing going back and forth. But there's also, to me, the, the repeated descriptions of how one side of that exchange is someone who is hitting the shuttlecock in this slow, high arc, and somebody else smashing it in this low, hard way that felt like it captured... Well, you're talking about it for two, and the slow and steady progress, where she seems to be bouncing back and forth between horror and hope. There was something in the, in the last line that Zadie Smith deploys, where she describes that shuttlecock as being... As if one player could imagine only a violent conclusion and the other only a hopeful return. There's something I find in Zadie's writing and Fatou's character in this story that feels caught between a reaching for something noble and refined and being smashed by a kind of pragmatic reality that is vicious and cruel. And that, in like the section where she's describing the passage in the Metro newspaper thing, I have so much love for Fatou and Zadie's writing and this feeling of everyone, the narrator, Fatou, Andrew, everybody trying to make a narrative, make a space for themselves, make, a, make sense of themselves within limited space, within limited meaning, within circumstances that the world seems to have allotted to you. And yet, somewhere in there, you have to make yourself. Thanks for listening, readers. We have probably not managed to talk about all the stories you've loved this week or even all the things that you've loved about these stories. Uh, so if you would like to talk to us, you can find us on Twitter. We are at Storylogical. That's story. Like the word. Oh. Like the letter. 
And logical. Like Aristotle. You can follow Emma on Twitter. She is at E.G. Kosh. And you can follow Chris on Twitter. He is at Kuvols. You can find and like us on Facebook. That is at facebook.com slash storyological, which is spelled as you almost certainly know by now. (laughs) How? I don't think that sentence (laughs) ended well. (laughs) Amazing. And if you have enjoyed uh, this episode and our continued spelling of the word storyological, then you can find us on iTunes, or as it is now called, Apple Podcasts, uh, and leave us a review, and that helps other people find us. And for show notes, links to past episodes, interviews with writers like Adam Ehrlich Sachs, and upcoming Sam J. Miller, that'll be out there in a couple weeks, uh, for appropriate and inappropriate gifts, all of that you can find at our home on the web. Storylogical.com. Thanks for listening. Happy reading. I don't know that this really follows what you just said, but I want to make sure I mention this sentence before we close out because it's one of my favorite sentences that I have ever read where Fatu and Andrew go swimming and Andrew is not a competent swimmer. And Fatu describes his swimming like this. He was hanging like a hippo under the water, then batting his arms till he crested for air. And there was something about that image and the kind of desperate, flailing failure of it that made me uh, so delighted and so happy, not just for the sentence existing, but for Fatu thinking it and seeing Andrew uh, in all his gory detail. The thing I want to tell you is I'm going to tell you my favorite, one of my favorite sentences in all of literature. Mm-hmm. Are you ready for this? Mm-hmm. It was not a successful dinner party. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we're good. All right, good. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Don't forget to save your audio file on the way out.